there's such a lot that will be talked about with with the client that just will never never get to the mdt because sometimes people actually sit down and to begin with want to want to say what's been going on and why they've ended up where they are and and there's such value in that because that then gives me a platform upon which to build some trust to then go into the ward round and to actually be quite combative um, without distressing that person and also, yeah, uh, um, trying to squeeze out of the NDC something that the person wants. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Really pleased to welcome along today, Jeff Smith. Jeff's been a qualified independent mental health advocate since 2008. He's worked extensively in inpatient and community settings since that time and describes his work as humbling. Jeff has worked exclusively within a London borough characterised by cultural diversity and socio-economic deprivation. And I first came across Jeff on social media where he was discussing a period of difficulty in his personal life and how that had impacted on his ability to perform his role. And this made me realise how we haven't covered advocacy at all during our podcast over the last, the last year or so. And it does make me wonder if this is reflective of how much in the mind of a service provider advocacy is. Advocates have to walk a difficult balance of organisations being aware of them, but without belonging within services to the degree that their independence is compromised. So it's really great to get the opportunity to sit down with you, Jeff, and talk about this role in more depth. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hello, Jeff. Very nice to uh, meet you. And uh, Naomi is quite right. Um, I, I remember I worked at East London Mental Health uh, Trust in the early years of this uh, century and uh, advocacy was just beginning to come in and I can remember I had very kind of ambivalent feelings uh, about the uh, the role at that time so it's particularly interesting to be challenged by meeting you today and talking about your your role so perhaps you could begin by telling us something about your career path yeah Sure. Um, I would say that my career path really um, is based or has been based almost exclusively in the voluntary sector. So um, I don't have any clinical training or social care training. Um, but uh, I think ever since leaving university uh, and I did an arts based degree uh, at university, I have really been working with people one way or another. Initially, it began with youth and community development work. Uh, it led on to um, coordinating a, a youth project and becoming commu a community centre coordinator. This was running concurrently with my uh, love of music, uh, moving to London, wanted to make it in a band and become a, a, a pop star. <laughs> so... <laughs> So my work was really important to me, but it was running alongside something else that I had a passion for. However, um, when I moved to London, it was in the uh, mid eighties. It was a good time to be working there. So especially from a, uh, a youth work uh, perspective, um, yeah, I had some 
that that was a really uh, really important time for me a good learning curve good to be doing that sort of work at the age that I was at in my early 20s um after then I I sort of I moved slightly um still in the voluntary sector um but at the time a lot of people were moving out of long stay hospitals um people with um learning disabilities and mental health difficulties and it was a really interesting time because I was involved in a project that established various houses in the community for people moving out of long stay hospitals. And I love that because I actually love the people that I was working with. Um, so I was doing that and, and sometimes I was doing it in a full time capacity. Sometimes I was doing it as a bank worker so that I could dovetail that with with what I was doing with my music. So I, I can't say that I really. Um, was aiming for a career or aim at any specialism. I just liked working with people. Um, after doing that for several years, um, I, I got involved in a community-based uh, mental health project called the Stress Project in Holloway. And what that was doing was setting up a community resource for people that might want services that were slightly different to what was being offered statutorily. And I was responsible for for presenting a plan that then in the end went to funders and um yeah that that was that was an interesting piece of work I, I sort of got involved with that through my history of working in community centers um after that this is after about 12 years of working I just I, I moved again and I moved into uh, something completely different I started working in a, a recording studio as an engineer and programmer. And I did that for quite a, no, a number of years. After then, um, I had a period of mental illness where I really um, struggled to manage working. I was, um, uh, I was accessing secondary mental health services and uh, it was a difficult time. Um, after then, um, and after having a number of years out of work, I figured that I would need to sort of get a foothold back into some form of work. And so I uh, began training as a Citizens Advice Bureau worker and completed the training and worked there for a couple of years. But my heart really was in um, mental health at that point, partly because of my lived experience, partly because, um, yeah, I felt that... Um, that this would be something that that I could contribute to. So I was interested in advocacy, didn't really know lots about it, and went for an interview at an organisation. And um, everything went wrong in the in the interview, as far as I was concerned. I was twenty five minutes late for the interview, and I remember uh, going back on the train, thinking, "Damn, that was a that was good. That would have been a good job." Anyway, they rang me up and they offered me the job. And um, yeah, I've been working in advocacy for about 13 to 14 years since that time, qualified as an independent mental health advocate. And um, yeah, I, I've, I've learned so much about myself and about um, statutory services, voluntary services, and it's been very humbling. And uh, yeah, that's more or less where I'm at. <laughs> Great. That that sounds like a very, very worthwhile uh, lifetime and uh, career 
Jeff. It's taken me back a bit because um, in the in the in the eighties and the mid eighties, I was working in West London at St Charles Hospital, oh. where, where where we were opening a new mental health unit for many of those people who were coming from the older, big uh, mental health hospitals that were closing on the outskirts of uh, London. So we were probably knocking around more or less the same time, I should think. Yeah, I think there was a great deal of, of sort of optimism, some of it naive, and, and we hadn't really got a clue about what, what, what difficulties people would face when they had moved out of these long-stay institutions, which for all that they were probably demonised at the time, there were also reasons why they could be safe places for, for people as well. And that transition was, yeah, that, was, that wasn't easy for people. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know why we were so optimistic in retrospect, because they were moving from these lovely old buildings with fantastic grounds to pokey little places in the middle of a city. But anyway. <laughs> It's easy to say that in hindsight. Indeed, indeed. So what does working as an advocate involve, Jeff? Okay. Well, I, I thought what I would I would just do is is, is read out a definition because all, all advocates work by um, an advocacy charter um, and there's a code of practice to go with that. Just like with regards to mental health practitioners, you know, there is a code of practice and there are guiding principles that... Um, that each practitioner is guided by. Um, so the definition of advocacy from the advocacy charter says, advocacy is taking action to help people to say what they want, secure their rights, represent their interests, and obtain the services that they need. Advocates and advocacy schemes work in partnership with the people they support and take their side. Advocacy promotes social inclusion, equality, and social justice. So I think it's important to just go with that initial definition. And I think it's also important um, to talk about very briefly about the advocacy charter. It, as I said, it's, it's a set of principles, not, not dissimilar to, to um, codes of practice that you, you know, that, that, or, or guiding principles in, in the um, codes of practice, such as the Mental Health Act. And I think, it's important for me because I think um, in recent times, advocacy has uh, become much more of a, a professional body and it's, it's identifying itself in terms of its specialism. So you can have an independent mental health advocate or an independent mental capacity advocate or a Care Act advocate or an independent domestic violence advocate. And this can leave lots of statutory practitioners with their heads spinning, thinking, well, which one's which, which one would I even refer to and what are their jobs and what are their roles? On, at the heart of it is the fact that we are all advocates and we have two fundamental ways of working. One is instructed advocacy and one is non-instructed advocacy. And broadly speaking, you know, non-instructed advocacy would be guided by the Mental Capacity Act and, and supporting somebody with best interests and following the Mental Capacity Act Code of Practice to work, uh, to, to advocate on behalf of that person if they couldn't instruct us directly to say what it is they want us to do. Instructed advocacy, which is overwhelmingly for me the bulk of what I do, it's meeting with people who are 
um, under compulsory uh, care and treatment, uh, either in the community or in inpatient settings. And so for most of the time, I'm obviously hearing what people say and what they want. Um, the big difference in terms of my role and, and, a, and a statutory practitioner, obviously, is there isn't a duty of care that statutory practitioners and clinicians have, except for the proviso of safeguarding and disclosure. Those are the two provisos where, you know, we do have a, a duty, uh, a statutory duty to respond to those circumstances. And we very much listen to what the person says. And even if what that person says is something that personally we might not agree with or that, you know, we, we might or somebody else might view it as an unwise decision, that isn't really the point. We're, we're trying to listen to, to what that person wants. Sometimes if I go into a ward round, I will have clinicians looking at me quizzically, raising eyebrows, because there are some things that I will have to raise that are just difficult. And sometimes there is a view from um, clinicians that advocates are just simply not considering the overall picture, not considering um, the role of the clinical team, the, the reason why somebody is detained or, or under compulsory treatment. What happens behind the scenes is a very different matter. So, for example, we spend a lot of time talking through with clients about what a person might want to say or do and what the reasons, if I can give you an example, somebody might um, have a very strong view that um, is an unusual view that the clinician might feel is to do with that person's mental illness. And, and I will, that there will be a discussion around what the clinician feels and there will be a back and forth so what the advocate is trying to do is navigate that mid middle position between ensuring that uh, I am partial and I am going off an instruction, but by providing information and context for that person so that, that it, it's about trying to ensure that the person has their voice, but also um, the care and treatment that has been offered, you know, that works for the, for the, for the client or the patient. I'm jumping ahead a little bit um, because my role, my specific role as an IMHA is, is, is guided very clearly by the Mental Health Act and by the Mental Health Act Code of Practice. And I need to have appropriate training um, and I need to be qualified in order to, to carry out the role. But broadly speaking, I work with patients who are deemed under the act to be qualifying patients and those patients um, are receiving care and treatment uh, under the process of compulsion. So that could be detention, guardianship, supervised community treatment or conditional discharge. And those are, those are regarded as qualifying patients. Um, there are patients that um, wouldn't be eligible for my sort of support. So patients who are under um, you know, a, a nurse's holding power or, or a section 5-2, a 72-hour section that, where a doctor needs to assess what's happening in terms of an informal patient, section 4, section 135, section 136. These are, these are sort of immediately, in, in, immediate emergency sections, if you like, and we, we don't have access. These, 
These are all sections of the Mental Health Act. And these are all sections to there, yeah. of the Mental Health Act, yeah. So broadly speaking, there are many people who are detained under, under the Mental Health Act via a section or, or other areas in the, or other treat, uh, areas of, of, of other treatment where there's compulsory treatment. Um, they're eligible for somebody like me. They can find me um, by, on the ward. Um, I spend a lot of time on the ward so they can find me. They can be referred to me statutorily through the responsible clinician, the nearest relative or the approved mental health professional. So if those three people refer a patient to me, I have a, I have a legal duty to make sure that I see that person. Equally, uh, anybody from the MDT can in, informally um, let me know that maybe somebody would like to see me. There's always a prerequisite in terms of what the code of practice asks of, asks of practitioners and advocates in that if somebody is referring uh, a person to the independent mental health advocacy service, uh, it's always good practice to ask the person whether or not in the very first instance they would like to, they would like to meet and they do consent. Um, and if the person doesn't have capacity to consent, then that's, you know, that, that, that referral can be made with, with that consideration in mind. Jeff, um, I'm going to stop you there because you've you've covered a lot of ground there already, and it sounds like a very complex role with many specialism branches. Actually, so tell us about the training. There must be a training for this post. Yeah, there is. Um, the, there is. Um, I have what's called a, a, a city and gills training for for specifically for the independent mental health act advocacy training you do it on the job um, so you can start working as an advocate uh, without that qualification but you need to be working towards completing that qualification and in terms of the um the in, what's involved i i was I would say that it's about a year's work of um, assessment via a, an overarching um, body that, that, that carries out these assessments. Firstly, it was an organisation called Action for Advocacy. Uh, it's now, um, th th there are other organisations that actually oversee um, the training. And there are a lot of private trainers that, that, that um, provide specific training for this role so it won't be within the advocacy provider service that, that the training is is given it's usually from an external um, trainer but it's quite extensive you need to know uh, everything with regards to the act itself to the role of the advocate to the role of all the different practitioners to issues relating to um, rights afforded to to patients, to, issue, to issues relating to diagnoses, treatments, and so on and so forth. And uh, I'm probably I'm probably giving it short shrift because it's quite it's quite detailed. I can recall having worked for three or four years as as an inpatient advocate before this role became a statutory role. That it it did really bring everything together in in my mind. It allowed me to. Um, really get to understand what I, what I was doing 
because there's there's an aspect of the advocacy service whereby you, you do hit the ground running once you're employed within an organisation. I've got mixed feelings about that, really, in terms of preparation of people going on to wards or working in, in settings where, where you know, they're, they're up and running quite quickly. And, and with the Mental Health Act, um, it's, ex it's extremely complicated. And in order to be able to, to know exactly what um, you need to do to support a client, um, yeah, it takes some time. Yeah. It's interesting you raised that, Jeff, because when you were talking earlier, I was thinking what an extraordinarily challenging role to take on. You know, just thinking as a psychologist, sometimes working in hospitals where there might be a real adherence to the medical model and you might be the only person offering an alternative perspective on treatment. That that can be very challenging, but you're part of the system. I'm just thinking that for advocates to go in there and be perhaps advancing a perspective of the client, which might really be at odds with what a clinical team want to do. I think that takes quite a lot of courage to, to do that. And I, I was wondering whether the training prepares people for that, or is that just expected to be the part of the personality uh, characteristics that you bring to the role? Yeah, that, that's a good question because within the training, there's, there's a lot of, um, there is a strong aspect on self-reflection there is a strong aspect on um, uh, you know how one deals with conflict, how one actually manages um, to support somebody in a, in a ward round, for example, asking something that that uh, a multidisciplinary team is either potentially might be, have a very strong view, uh, opposite view, um, and so so there's a there's a lot of there is a lot of reflection that goes into that training, but it doesn't really, you know, if if I hadn't been working for three years as an advocate before that training, um, I think I would look at that training in a completely different way. It just allowed me to reflect upon the three years that I'd been working within the hospital in the first instance. So I was already reasonably experienced. No, nonetheless, I think that the um, the training, you know, it, it is very valuable. My feeling is, is that, uh, is that the focus within advocacy around that very specific training for the IMHA should be much earlier and that there should be, uh, I don't, I'm not, I've got views on advocates starting the job from um, straight away and, and jumping in at the deep end. Uh, I do feel that actually uh, advocacy services, partly because of the financial restrictions, partly because of the expectations from service level agreements, um, th th there is an expectation that people will hit the ground running. Whereas if you were a, a, a clinician, nurse or, or other practitioner, you know, you'd have either done a degree or you've had a qualification and you would also be very much part of a multidisciplinary team. Also, framed by lots of structures to do with with assessments and protocols and whilst advocacy has this um you know it's much it's much looser and it's much more maverick the 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 good side to that i would say is that you can 
you can go into a ward round as an advocate and you can start to ask questions that are sort of quite common sense in their in their basis and it sort of wakes the team out of its torpor of of clinical language and clinical dialogue and it's and you know you can if you it, if something's going well it, it can spark a sort of creative idea about a difficulty that somebody's having and how the team can think about supporting that person differently in in a, in a lot of cases um for advocacy even if you're experienced it is it is small um small practical victories so it could be a reduction in medication it could be more leave it could be something to do with discharge that means the person leaves earlier but you know advocates are up against the you know an under, understandably well structured and, and firmly hierarchical system that is there to contain people yeah, yeah that's that's uh, very well uh, put so how did the role of i mean you've been involved with advocacy almost since its beginning as i understand it how did it come about do you think i mean well, I is it is there a sort of notion around that the advocate should be as it were like an everyman uh, the ordinary person off the street is that something of the philosophy i think it uh, i think it very much advocacy grew out of, of of a very specific and local need and it grew out of um it grew from the ground up it's it's very different now because it's become part of the sort of voluntary sector health and, and social care industry whereas back in the sort of maybe 80s uh, 70s and 80s what began to happen is that, that people who had um, access services um, service users began to get involved and began to speak up and also uh, people who had had experience of, of operating of, of being admitted into hospital felt very strongly that they would have really benefited from a voice at the time and this movement became quite strong uh, in, in the sort of in the mid 80s i would say and there's certain organisations that were, were like proto-advocacy services. And so if I'm, if I'm clear on that, there was, the organisations were probably more open about having had lived experience, but they also thought, well, look, we've been there and we feel that we need to support people who are currently, you know, um, going through um, an admission. So... It grew out of a local need. And the organisation that I first worked with, really, um, was established by a couple of, of people, one woman in particular, who was incredibly um, able, capable, and, sh and she drove um, the services within the borough. You know, she was banging on the door and saying, you know, we need to be able to support people at the, at the unit. And out of that um, grew... Uh, an acceptance and an acknowledgement that there was value in, in what she was suggesting and eventually funding was secured so our organization was the initial organization that i worked with was was secured funding it towards the end of the 90s and it was very much um, a small local organization very very clearly service user led um, the management committee was 60% um, made up of people with lived experience and 
the staff team was about 50-50 in terms of uh, people with lived experience. And interestingly, people who had come from the statutory sector who felt, you know what, I, I feel I need to sort of like work in a different way. So in my team was an approved social worker. There were mental health acts managers. There were um, a couple of other people that would come from statutory services. And that made an interesting balance. And so, uh, so advocacy in its infancy um, really started from scratch, people volunteering and eventually um, funding was secured. And it got to the stage where our organization was, where there was sufficient funding from the local authority. This was before the statutory role of the IMHA came, to, came into place where you know, we had an involvement in the community and in inpatient settings. And, and our service was, there was no Care Act involvement. There was no, because the Care Act didn't exist and, and there weren't no, was no other form of advocacy. It was solely mental health advocacy. And I think there was real value in having that specialism. Um, and um, yeah, I think if, if you're asking me today, how, how different is it? I think it, it, it's become, much more complex as a, as a sort of um, as a structure in that it's advocacy is much more aligned to the legislation, the changes in legislation, introduction of new legislation. And so um, I feel that there's an organized advocacy organizations are I feel that there's a push when you join an advocacy organisation to be a more generalist advocate. In other words, to work with people with a learning difficulty, you might lack capacity or older people or work to support people under the Care Act. And whilst that's really good, I think my the strength of the organisation that I worked for was its singular focus on, on, on mental health. And, and obviously, even though I had a singular focus, it's inevitable that the interface between the Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act, Care Act, so on and so forth, they all, they, they're all relevant. So I'd still have to know about all of the, the legislation. It's imperative. Um, but what I did have at the heart of it was a, was a root of, of, of um, you know, a focus on mental health. And what I will say is um, when I joined the team, it was a really experienced and good team. And so as well as having the training, I had a, a lot of um, a lot of good supervision from my line manager, who was a, a mental health act manager who could really steer me in the right direction in terms of mental health act um, conundrums. And also advocates with a lot of experience who provided, um, were very generous in providing some peer support. However, um, I think that today, um, yeah, I think there's, I think my, my feeling is and my experience is there's a lot, lot less of that. If you've got a very strong team who can be generous with their time and it's not easy because that means, you know, they're, they're stretched as well. Then, um, yeah, uh, I think I had a good, a good start. And I think that that was for me where advocacy began. Not sh quite sure whether I've answered the question. As you want to, but you've you've given the very detailed uh, answer there, Jeff, and, and and really interesting. I mean, just now you were raising the phenomenon that certainly I've observed 
in in teams, and I expect Naomi has too, where that initial sense of uh, newness and adventure, uh, enthusiasm, um, really starts up a project, but it becomes difficult to maintain it over an extended period of time. And it's interesting at some stage we ought to reflect upon that particular phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think if I, I can just add, um, I, I, I was a casework manager, an interim casework manager for a period of time, because it's not my bag to, to, be, <laughs> to, to do management stuff. But the, there was a proviso before I took on that role, and that was to make sure that a new team that had come on board, who I felt had got loads of potential, received a substantial amount of training in the first instance. So that was about 10 days of training, and it was all focused on, on the legislation, on ways of working, on active listening, on aspects to do with diagnoses. And that was not available to people um, within the larger organization. But my, my senior manager said, ah, that's okay, we can second you for that week in order to provide that. And that, what I felt that did is that that established an ethos within the team. And that's what I felt was really important because it felt like there was lots of potential with these new people. But it also felt to me like if, if people are dropped in at the deep end, they will flounder, they will pick up some habits that sort of is not through their own fault, that really, um, you know, that, that's not on task. Yeah, so um, I do feel that that's really important. And it's, it's, it, it was an unusual thing to do, but I was determined that, you know, this new team should have the best opportunity as a springboard and also to know what, what, what our, our organization was really about because a, a, a significant number of very experienced staff left all in one go and there was a void and I was thinking we've got to continue that legacy in a sense. Thank you. Naomi? Yeah, so how, do, how do people with lived experience typically end up accessing um, advocacy services? Do they refer themselves? Do, do you get many referrals from clinicians? Because I'm just thinking in a way, if a clinician refers somebody to advocacy services, perhaps, it's perhaps a service where advocacy is less needed than in services where they wouldn't entertain that. Um, what do you mean that, by, by, by that last statement, Naomi? Well, I was thinking that if a team's willingly um, trying to encourage advocacy within within their service then yeah. i suppose to me that suggests the team is quite open to yeah to being questioned and challenged so perhaps as paradoxically there's perhaps less need of, of advocacy within that kind of service than within one where there's more closed-mindedness you know maybe i'm not being very clear but okay i understand what you're saying um it's interesting. I've got to say that, um, yeah, I haven't met. I haven't met. There hasn't been an MDT um, or, or a ward unit from the off that I felt. You know what? They really get all this stuff and they welcome us. And mm -hmm. you know, in a in a sense, we're singing from the same hymn sheet. However, what does happen is that it, it's. 
over time you get known and over time you get tested and over time the team is watching you and there are occasions where you do a piece of work and um the team sees the value in that and things start to click it can change um significantly if you've got a ward manager who really is supportive because that ethos or that view will filter down to the rest of the team so that's always good same for a responsible clinician if you've got a responsible clinician who's just broadly speaking supportive of it um i mean we on, on the pq ward the male pq ward that i worked for years and years and years there was a, a, a responsible clinician very experienced really nice chap and always really supportive of of um, advocacy um, the hardest, the hardest doctor to sort of get anything out of, having said that. And it was, um, I felt that that was, that worked well because, um, you know, you, you, you could get the sense that from the top, the, the responsible clinician sort of saw the value in it. And so um, you're absolutely right. Um, if if I thought that there was a team that sort of like was just completely um, singing from my hymn sheet, then um, yeah, that's an ideal world. And it's never really going to be the case because advocacy is just coming from that slightly different slant. We're not looking at risk in the same way that, that you are. We're not looking at that aspect of containment. And you could, you know, you as a team could push back at us and say, you know, look, we're working with people who, you know, that that person really does need some containment in order to get better. That person does need some parameters. They do need some boundaries. And you're, you're bloody well listening to everything that they're saying and you're reporting back to us. And there, that is something that's, that in a way, it, it is a question that I ask myself as an experienced advocate when, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going off an instruction and I'm going into a ward round to talk about something that um, is going to be difficult for um, the multidisciplinary team to sort of accept or work with. But, but I will say that overall, there are the conversations that I have with the patients or the clients, as I call them, there's a lot of self-reflection or there's a lot of to-in and fro-in between um that person that, that that's not seen in the ward rounds so you know I, let me give you an example somebody might say well I, I bloody hate that responsible clinician and as far as i'm concerned it's to do with these voices in my head from gchq and that's what i'm going to tell him and i want you to tell him that so i will tell the responsible clinician that but sometimes what will happen is in the conversation i might i might push back with a reflect brief a question and say, well, what do you think that responsible clinician is going to think in terms of um, GCHQ controlling what goes on and it having nothing to do with your mental health, just from practical purposes, because what we're going to go in there for is to ask for some leave. And he'll say, well, he'll think, he'll think I'm psychotic. And so, you know, we'll then explore that and go into the discussion of where that might be. And you could argue that it's it's me trying to avoid asking some ludicrous question or some difficult question, but it's not. 
is to find a halfway house because usually what will happen is is then in the ward round i might have an i might have an angle to say look there is a difference of opinion and my client is really strong about feels very very um firmly that this is the difference of opinion but nonetheless blah 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 and so the context is key and so that means a ward round can change between somebody turning up really pissed off saying i don't agree or storming out or so on and so forth and, and of course um you get those ward rounds where somebody is absolutely furious you know that it's going to go to pieces you know that the person is going to storm out sometimes a person doesn't want to be even in there but broadly speaking, I think that it changes the, when it works well, it just changes, the, it just has a, a slight change in, in the slant. And, you know... Uh, and I like negotiation out. skills are really key to, to, the, to the job as well. Yeah, and, and also whilst you're in that meeting, um, what's said and what's not said is crucial. If you are seen in any way by somebody who is like really scared, really feeling wary, hypervigilant, you've got to be absolutely um, solely focused on what that person really wants and constantly referring to them with body language and eye contact, because it would be so easy during the conversation with a responsible clinician or a team lead to just get caught up in something and, and, the, and that person would just think, hold on a minute, where's this going? And so it's 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 getting that balance, and um, you know sometimes it, it's very very fear provoking for the advocate because you're going in there um, for with with a whole team of, of people looking straight at you. We know it's terrifying for the patient. We know they're filled with fear, and that can manifest sometimes as real anger and shame and rage and so on and so forth, or you know just complete withdrawal. So the the. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's really about those nuanced grey areas as well, working with the client, picking up on what's not said as much as what, what is said. And um, I know one of the... There's such a lot that will be talked about with, with the client that just will never, never get to the MDT because sometimes people actually sit down and to begin with want to want to say what's been going on and why they've ended up where they are and and there's such value in that because that then gives me a platform upon which to build some trust to then go into the ward round and to actually be quite combative um without distressing that person and also yeah uh, um trying to squeeze out of the ndc something that the person wants Raised lots of really interesting things there, Jeff, including kind of like that the fear of service providers and uh, you know, given the histories of trauma that people often bring um, that, that end up in, in um, psychiatric services, it's not surprising if there is that fear of, of service providers as, a, as authority figures. Um, but also kind of like touching on quite often knowing something about people's personal histories um, that maybe sometimes the service providers don't know themselves um how much intrapersonal conflict do you end up in as a as an advocate in terms of understanding perhaps some of the difficulties in in the relationship with the service provider but not really being able to share to share those 
yeah, that's a really that's a really important dynamic, and the conflict works in in different ways. Um, there is. I, I, was curious, I was interested in how you manage it yourself, really. I guess because it takes quite a lot of maturity as a and self awareness to to recognise that that's going on, doesn't it, and to to manage it. Well, I understood it in a way for the question to be that what you know what might be. You know what what might be disclosed to me um in some senses that that the the there is a so, a strong psychological aspect to the role even though we're we're we're, we're a we're lay people you know because somebody is telling us what's what's going on and, and and you're right we we are listening to some some experiences that are difficult that are challenging and, and and we're not trained in that area and also we're not we're not we're not even i don't think in, in advocacy we're not even given that sort of framework to understand aspects to do with trauma aspects to do with with sort of people's defense mechanisms in order you know to 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 to, to address that but i so so i think that is a good question for me i Partly to do with my life experiences, partly to do with the work. I, you know, I made a concerted effort to really understand and to read up a lot about issues relating to to um, the psychological difficulties, as well as that, that. You know, what I'm dealing with within a mental health model framework, and that 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 I didn't do it just because I was interested in it. I did it because there was a particular group of of people with a particular diagnosis that just did not get a service within within the borough because there was no CCG funding for, you know, trauma-focused diagnosis or personality disorder diagnosis. And so that grew out of the need. And my, and my sort of layperson expertise, if you like, grew out of that need to challenge via formal complaints or going to the CCG or senior, senior managers within teams to be able to identify where the good practice guidelines like the nice guidelines or personality disorder you know no diagnosis without exclusion all of these these documents that are that are prerequisites to good practice working in a borough with people who get a an initial diagnosis of personality disorder and then be discharged after a couple of weeks for example or wouldn't receive any appropriate um treatment uh, specific for their needs, even though within the trust in another borough was a specific organisation, you know, um, that was offering DBT and mentalisation based tech, um, uh, uh, approaches and modalities. And so. Um, so, yeah, it was it is a big ask because that was off my own back, really. That's that's for me to sort of research and, and, and to understand. But it, it, in part, it became key because as an advocate i think you are expected to really research what what's going on and you are expected to look at um details in order to argue effectively i know that some advocates watching this would say hmm, not sure where you where you sit on this jeff i'm not sure whether this is advocacy but my, my view would be that i cannot go into a, 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 a an mdt meeting and not have some notion about what it means around um, 
the side effects, the specific side effects of medication or the specific issues to do with good practice around a particular diagnosis, because I'd just be selling somebody short. So, um, so I, I think that that is a that that is a. I did feel a pressure there, even within the organisation, because it was there was I often used to have to go back to my managers to check that what I was doing was within my remit and I'd have to argue the case if I was doing a piece of work and why I could justify it and you know if that, that's that's also like a sort of um, a boundary matter for me but I feel that within advocacy today it's at more senior management level there isn't there isn't the knowledge that's that, that should be there to be able to actually oversee a team. There isn't a lot of senior managers within advocacy. They don't, they don't have that experience. And I think that, that that's a problem that can leave that can leave a team quite unsupported. At casework manager level, it may well be there, but above that, where further decisions are being made, it may not. So there is there there is um, there is a lot of pressure there. The the, the issue of risk is, is another pressure. You know, in the hospitals, there are still such clear guidelines around protocols and risk. And and I felt I feel that whilst there are policies within advocacy, I don't I do wonder about some of the, um, the you know, the, the yeah, I, I do feel that there's 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 something missing in terms of our. I feel advocacy should share local protocols with trusts around matters to do with risk. And, and I encouraged our organisation to do, I drafted a local protocol specifically around a, 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 a war that was we were having difficulty with and to get it adopted. And there wasn't any will with senior managers within advocacy services to take that any further, whereas I feel that's absolutely fundamental in one, reassuring a multidisciplinary team that we're serious about risk, uh, and at the same time that you know that 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 we're still independent but we're we're mindful that you know that um that you have that the team has that duty of care thanks jeff um i think tony ben used to say that it was important to recognize that politics contained conflict that you had to have conflict because people were arguing for for different things. Do you think that's the, the same with advocacy with regards to um, your ordinary um, MDT, that there has to be some kind of conflict that you're like the, well, you're like the um, sand in the oyster, as it were, to create the pearl? I, I think it should be the same in an MDT. I, I think, uh, you know, I've worked with some really good practitioners in the past and I, and I feel that they've questioned and, and thrown a bit of sand into the, into the uh, oyster in the same way that I have. What I've watched is, is that <laughs> seemingly um, shut down much more quickly than, than than I would be able to raise raise some concerns within my organization I, I feel that I feel that there, there can be a, a closed mindedness within MDTs and that there are there can be some some people within the MDTs who've got a more of a as a, a, 
a sort of creative self-reflective approach that that can leave leave them vulnerable um equally i think that within an advocacy service i remember when i started it i felt like i was joining the the masons it was it felt so odd to try and get my head around the idea of instructed advocacy that i just follow the instruction i you know no matter how how scary it might be or how how um combative it might be i was following these instructions and and i i think yeah i i, th I think that probably ne'er the twain shall meet because the the the, the multidisciplinary team have got such a, a you know a a clear path to follow where with advocacy it's very much about focusing on people's people's rights or what it is that they want and yeah i don't i'm not sure whether i've answered that right either or correctly well, do, 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 do you feel that as an advocate you would have got support if you'd been raising issues of competency about the team or practice within the uh, the uh, organization no not really i have done as well i i have i have um raised concerns about you mean my own organ the organization i work for yes yes because yeah. to me it sounds as if there's the potential to become rather isolated yes and i i i have um i have challenged um one or well a couple of organizations and um uh yeah, faced the, the prospect or, or, or the fear of disciplinary um, on account of raising concerns about the way that the organisation was running more, uh, at, at more senior levels. And um, in one organisation in particular, I was um, chupied over to an organisation that... Um, scared the living wits out of me once I'd actually joined it because it was, um, it had um, tendered, put in a tender that clearly um, undercut the existing organisation that I was um, working with. But as a part of that tender, um, they, the organisation had agreed that no person, no patient could come to us directly and ask for our help. And that the only way that we could receive a referral would be through a practitioner, which um, it immediately to me um, brings up issues around the mental, you know, the, the, the Mental Health Act Code of Practice, the Equality Act, even the Human Rights Act. And so I, you know, having started working within the organisation, I said, you know, I, I cannot sign my contract over to you because that sign my contract because. I think what you've agreed to with this service level agreement is is completely unworkable, and I refuse to work with that. And I asked them for the for the whistleblowing policy within the first couple of weeks, fully expecting that I'd probably just have to leave. But I was not going to. Um, I'd worked in that that hospital and unit for many years, and I was not going to um, shortchange the people that that um, I work with by, by um, yeah, by, by aligning myself with this ludicrous um, service level agreement. And um, the local authority did back down um, and I did get a result. And the organization that I worked for um, 
sort of more or less said, are you happy now? There was, there was no acknowledgement that actually what I'd done was the right thing. And ironically, when um, COVID hit, had they operated on the basis of only a clinician referring, they would have not got, not got a single person and they would have been in, you know, in real trouble because they wouldn't have got any referrals because people were calling us up. And the idea that, um, you know, somebody couldn't come up to me on the ward and say, Oi, Jeff, or Oi, advocate, is just anathema. And um, so I was determined that that would be something that I, I, I just couldn't let that one go. I'd let other things go <laughs> previously. And yeah, it was a bit scary. And I did feel like quite alone in it. And I was the only person that did it, uh, um, but it, it was okay. Yeah, well, a very important, very important point to win, I think, Jeff. So do you get any kind of support or supervision, clinical supervision? Yeah. Um, I mean, when, uh, it's supervision, it, 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 uh, clinical supervision is, is not the term, it's supervision. Um, that's regular and that's, that's an expectation from the advocacy charter, probably every four to six, probably every six weeks. And um, I, I, I feel that you also have opportunities for, for um, informal uh, supervision from your line manager. I feel that I've been very lucky up until more recently with my line managers. I feel that they've been um, very um, supportive, allowed me to voice concerns. I don't, I've never felt sort of fearful of bringing anything up. So within the team, as opposed to at more senior management level, I felt very supported and protected. I've also felt that um, yeah, there's there's also a lot of of, of uh, yeah of peer supervision or, or or you know there are a lot of discussions amongst the team around practice issues which I think are are healthy and good. I think some advocacy organisations are tending to use that a little bit and say, well, you know, we 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 encourage shadowing, and that sometimes feels to me like it's a cheap way of saying, well, you know. Let's get some of the experienced advocates to sort of like um, do what they need to do and, and give up their time in order to make sure that new people come on. I think there's a, there's a fine line between the notion of a team that is open, self-reflective and supportive and being stretched. I was a bit shocked, actually, when you said that your supervision was only every four to six weeks, because I just think given the potential for conflict in the role and managing difficult dynamics with organizations it, that to me doesn't sound like a lot no what would what would generally happen is is that um if something came up um whilst i was on the ward then i have i have access to my 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 casework manager pretty readily so it may well be that each week there would be something that i would need to get a steer on or at least need to unpack and as I said, in, in for many years, I felt that that was available to me. So right from the start, I, I, I would be able, um, on a daily basis, be able to talk through an issue. But the formal supervision um, was, you know, was 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 specific to that time frame. I, I think, generally speaking, supervision from casework managers, my experience has been pretty good. Um, 
you could say that if it was if I was a less experienced advocate, I might not want to bring those those issues forward because I might feel oh I don't want to, you know I don't want to be seen to to not be able to be to not be able to deal with what I'm dealing with. But um, so, but but yeah, managers made themselves available. How how much of a, of a priority is staff wellbeing for advocacy services? Is that something that that they take seriously? No, I don't think so. No. Um, I, I don't I don't think um, I don't think there's an uh, there's a real understanding of of um, just what it's like if you if you've if you've been um, on a ward and there's been conflict either either you know between um, yourself and the professionals or you know even be, be to, with with clients who are just really unhappy or really distressed or you know, just really manifesting a lot of fear through anger. I, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think they do recognise that. I also don't think they recognise the more nuanced aspect of the role, where, whereby you do carry an awful lot of stuff, stuff that's projected. Um, you're also having to think on your feet in terms of negotiating, um, you know, di different points of view with 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 very very strong arguments on either side and, and you have to hold you have to hold what your client wants right at the heart of it um, so I think my probably my most difficult experiences have been with with um, with, with with senior clinicians rather that rather than with with patients but you know equally there's an assumption, isn't there? I guess that well, if it's the advocate, there can't be any conflict with, with clients, and that's simply not the case. And that there are circumstances whereby, um, that there are issues to do with your safety. Um, there are issues when people can become uh, really frustrated and really, um, yeah, really angry. And and as I said, you know, in in that. In that relationship where somebody might be disclosing or talking about things very, very, um, that are very, very um, fear provoking or very, very important to them. I don't know when something's going to switch. I don't know where necessarily. I think I've intuitively I've got a good idea, but I, I you know, I, I go in there and, and, you know, to all intents and purposes, you know, I, I don't know for definite that, that, um, you know that the the balance that I strike about what 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 a person is saying to me and how I how I respond to that is is always um, the right thing and 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 how long you know if somebody wants to tell you their story because that's quite often the case you know you'll sit down with a new person and say right okay advocate let me tell you blah, blah, this is what's this is. and so I have to stop them and I have to say look you know first things first bear with me. What you've got to say is dead important, but look, I'm free, independent and confidential. And anything that I say is between me and you, but with those two provisos, if you say anything to me about blah, 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 blah. blah. And then the person will say, right, you know, here I am. What they're doing to me is against the Human, human Rights Act. This is illegal. You've got to do something. You've got powers. You can go do it. Or they find out that the nearest relative has got the power to discharge. Right, let's get on to my dad, my mom, this, and... And then they might begin to tell me things about what has happened to them. And I have to then 
I'm always seeking to try and get an instruction, but I'm also, I'm gauging how much time do I allow that person to just sort of feel comfortable, not feel rushed, know that what they're telling me is 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 important and not important at the same time for me. So it's a really difficult balancing act. Mm. It, it does sound it sounds a very very challenging uh, role, and I think um, one of the things I think that I became aware of from following you on social media was uh, your openness to acknowledging a difficult period in your own life and the impact that had on your role. But you don't often, you don't very often hear many people in traditional mental health backgrounds reflecting so openly about their experiences and wondered if you were partly able to do this because of the culture of advocacy services and the origins. I think that's true. Um, I think that's true. But I also think that um, I was faced with a, a, a huge challenge because I, I, I'd experienced um, something in my life that was, well, I'd experienced an abusive relationship and it very, very much um, turned things upside down for me because I had to have some time off work. And then when I went back to work, I was finding it extremely difficult to deal with people splitting or projecting or getting angry and it was triggering a whole host of things and I felt really upset because I was beginning to feel that um, I'd lost my mojo and I'd lost my fire the fire in my belly to sort of ensure that you know irrespective of how a person is you know look at the overall picture behind me was still a lot of um fear and rage and shame of what had gone on and so some of that was seeping into my work and I had to I had to come away from the um I had to come away from the inpatient setting for a while but you know what it's it's a strange it's a strange old thing really is that I you go through a very very traumatic experience and obviously you know you wouldn't you wouldn't want it but boy do you, do you learn from it? And I then spent a couple of years working in the community and I worked almost exclusively with people, again, who had, had experienced trauma, not, not, not for any other reason, but this group of people couldn't get access to services in the borough for love nor money. And um, it was probably the best thing that could have happened because I was witnessing what people were, were going through and intuitively I had a way of understanding where I might need to go practically because I also understood a lot of this you know that the the, the sort of experiences that they were having and um it it I began to I began to push things a little bit in terms of the advocacy role in that on on a couple of occasions you know, an advocate is meant to give absolutely no opinions or advice. And I, 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 I get that. But there were a couple of occasions where one particular person, we were trying to get her a home and she was very vulnerable, vulnerable to sexual exploitation, vulnerable on account of substance misuse, vulnerable on account of potentially on account of being homeless, vulnerable on account that she'd got an... Um, a possible uh, emotionally unstable personality disorder in the offing. And she would regularly sabotage these key meetings around work, uh, trying to get housing offices on board. And 
she would come back to me having, having gone to ground for a, you know five or six days and we managed to just sort of talk about this in terms of 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 shame and and of trauma and the reason and what i did is i said look have you have you thought about these sorts of things that can occur because she had an idea about that she might have a personality disorder and that opened up a discussion and it also allowed her to be able to um work with me and 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 the shame lesson somewhat and i did disclose the tiniest amount i said look i will just say that shame for me in my life and i won't say anymore has been a big driver so i do recognize this and I, i'm saying that to you because i just feel that if if we don't if we don't have some sort of agreement now you won't get this accommodation and it's up to you but will you allow me to chase you up when you go to ground and we sort of set some agreement so there was an honesty there there was a bit of disclosure there I had to be very careful because this was very contrary to sort of perhaps what normal advocacy practice is about but it was a it was that sort of it was that sort of call and i think that my experience personally has allowed me to just follow those sort of like gaps you know and just you know just touch into those gray areas occasionally and it, and i and i've been a much better worker for it the outcomes have been people have disclosed to me historical abuse or domestic violence which the mdt did not know about or some form of trauma which the mdt did not know about and i was able to bring it people have also sort of um yeah so it so it it's it's been incredibly satisfying but it 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 does worry me because of the structure in which you know advocacy operates you know i'm, I'm you could argue and some advocates could some advocacy managers they might they might feel quite worried about me operating in that way what what i did do is i used to pass this in detail through my casework manager tell her about what i was experiencing in terms of the trauma that i'd gone identify what was what was my what was mine and what was going on try to make sure that the boundaries remained in place to the best of my ability and that was very much part of a healing process and that also made me a much much better advocate and um and i think that's why i'm not sure whether i can work in mainstream advocacy anymore i don't know whether i can do that anymore Picking up on this uh, to some extent jeff as we've got to the end of this uh, conversation but uh, I think uh, we've both been struck by how emotionally challenging the role of the advocate uh, is. And so we always like to get some understanding of how you maintain your own emotional well-being during your career. I think I've been very fortunate in being part of several really good teams. So uh, and 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 good managers. And I think that what I've been able to do is um, is unpack some of the difficult stuff um, and some of the, the scary stuff uh, and be able to get a sense of um, what what are, what are my feelings and where the where where I start and the other person stops, for example, because I think you can get quite drawn in to somebody's um, 
distress and, and unwellness and it's hard to see uh, the wood for the trees sometimes. If you're working alone as an advocate, which you, you do, I think I manage it, I've managed it by, um, I've never worked full, full time. So I've always taken time off. I've managed it through making music. I've managed it through um, gaining more knowledge about, about the subject of, of people's emotional well-being as well as my own and, and understanding more about um, my own mental well-being. Um, I think that that's allowed me to, to dig into resources that uh, I perhaps didn't think that I had. And um, I think I've really, really learned and enjoyed the work that I've done within advocacy. It feels naturally now that um, I'm ready for something else, and I don't know what, because because it's it's it, it's become a career, hasn't it? Really, after 12, 13, 14 years. Um, I did wonder whether you thought about ever thought about training as a music therapist and combining your two passions. Yeah, I, I I don't know. You know, funnily enough, that one of the one of the best memories that I've got on the ward is uh, working on the ward is there was an OT who worked on the low secure unit. Oh, she was just the best. She was so good, you know. And uh, she just used to come up with these crazy ideas. And she said, I, you know, I, I want to do a I want to do a music festival. And uh, she said, you know, Jeff, you can play. And and, and what about it? And there's lots of people on this low secure unit really good and um so we, we 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 got this festival going and i was going to sort of like be sort of playing for some people who would be singing and i was jamming with one guy and um oh it was just really nice to be able to just um to to, to sit down with people that i was uh, you know I, I was advocating for and just see a completely different side of them and um so yeah, maybe maybe there is something there in that. But I think what what the joy of it was, um, just the the people were great. The, the the such talent on the ward from the patients, really fantastic um, practitioner who was driving and getting me involved as well. And I felt wow, this I could do with more of this. So yeah, you might have a point there, Amy. <laughs> Um, but I'm still, you know, I still really do think that there is space for within the within the community, um, a type of support for people who have got, let's, you know, let's not call it the complex need, but people with an overwhelming complexity in their lives. And, and, and they seem to just fall between all the gaps of these newer voluntary sector services and not insufficient time is spent to actually just get that person you know up and running and off there and, and, and on their feet if I, if I can just finish with one one example it was somebody who um uh i mentioned before that was that was vulnerable to sexual exploitation and she needed housing she got her house she went back to do her law degree she she sort of like it was the beginning of, of, of a new part of uh, her life. And she, you know, she sort of contacted me sort of like a year or so later. She said, I'm doing human rights law, Jeff. It's fantastic. I'm on the way. And I said, you better bloody well pay us back then, aren't you, when you're a hotshot, because we're going to need you. And it is it is that aspect of this work that I, you know, I felt, you know, it's just brilliant.
<laughs> Thank you. That's that's really uh, helpful, Jeff. So what I've picked up from that is that you're thoughtful and reflective and you're a, an accomplished musician and you get a lot of uh, feedback, good positive feedback from the actual work that you do and your engagement with the individuals you're working with. Great. Thanks very much indeed.